The Athletic. Welcome to Bedtime Football Stories with The Athletic. Tonight we tell the story of Brian Clough and his extraordinary period at the helm of Nottingham Forest. Clough had already made a name for himself at Derby County through winning the league title in 1972, but it was at Forest that he became a legend. Lie back, close your eyes, breathe in until you feel your stomach expanding underneath your chest. Breathe out again, relax, it begins here. When Brian Clough arrived at Nottingham Forest in January 1975, they were a mediocre provincial club whose most recent success was winning the FA Cup in 1959. But they were 13th in the old second division now. Clough too was damaged goods. He arrived in Nottingham three months after his infamous 44-day spell at Leeds United having managed to alienate further pretty much everyone at a club who hated him anyway. On his first day, he had told the Leeds players that they had won all of their many medals by cheating and thus advised them to throw them into the biggest dustbin you can find. And it went downhill from there. So this was both a club and a manager on their uppers who both needed each other to repair their respective reputations. They didn't just need a new manager, Clough wrote in his autobiography. The place was so dead, they needed the kiss of life. At the time, the best both of them could realistically have hoped for was a creditable promotion and re-establishment in the first division. The idea that five years later, Forrest would not only have won promotion, but won the league title too, and that they would not only have won the European Cup, but retained it the following year, well, it would have been considered a work of the most outlandish fiction. But that's exactly what happened. Nottingham Forest have one thing going for them at the moment. Me, said Clough upon arriving. It was classic Clough. Arrogant, outrageous, all style. But the substance wasn't quite with him yet. Clough once said that he was the shop window and his erstwhile assistant Peter Taylor the man who spotted the talent that Clough then got the best out of was the goods in the back. He would have to wait a while for those goods. For now, he would have to run his eye over the squad he'd taken over on his own. There were some tired old figures at Forest, but there was also some promising young talent. A few players that others just hadn't seen the potential of yet, but who would eventually go on to do rather well. Viv Anderson had just broken into the team. Martin O'Neill had been in and out of the starting 11. Tony Woodcock had come through the ranks. There was the solid pro Ian Bowyer, a signing from late Orient a couple of years earlier. And then there was John Robertson, a shuffling, slightly podgy midfielder. Robertson had talent, but was on the transfer list when Clough rolled through the door. And with good reason. He smoked more than he trained, he was overweight and under-interested in the business of being a professional footballer 
and would probably have been sent on his way by any other manager. But Clough spotted something that others didn't. He put Robertson on the left wing, and eventually he would become one of the most talented wide players in Europe. Clough's first game was an FA Cup replay at First Division Tottenham, which they won, following it up with a 1-0 victory across London against Fulham. But that was about as good as that first season got. They won only two more games and finished 16th in the table, meaning Clough's first season ended with them in a worse position than when he arrived. In fact, for a while they looked in danger of relegation. Those two wins didn't come until the final five games, actually slightly inflating their final league position. While there was clearly some talent in the team, more so after Clough signed John McGovern and John O'Hare, previously with him at both Derby and Leeds, Clough wondered whether this team and club was actually worse than he thought, and whether he had made another mistake in joining them. The following season saw some progress. Some dead wood was cleared from the squad, and players like Frank Clark were brought in, who would go on to be vital in the successes to come. But Forrest still only finished eighth, promotion only a little closer than it was when Clough arrived. The summer of 1976 was when it all changed. That was when Clough persuaded Peter Taylor to join him once again. The two had forged their reputation almost as one managerial entity rather than two separate individuals. They first worked together at Hartlepool United and then at Derby, where they won the club's first ever league title before leaving under a cloud soon afterwards. Taylor had tried to make a go of it on his own at Brighton, but ultimately both men knew that they were far more effective together. We knew we were banging our heads against a brick wall on our own, Taylor said. Together, we could do any job. There was no point in delaying. This was the spark the catalyst that Forrest and Clough needed. The most remarkable managerial partnership in the history of English football was together again, backed up by their dependable trainer, Jimmy Gordon, a man who Clough described as a fair-minded old pro whom I could trust with my life and my wallet if I carried one. And so began the process that Clough and Taylor had based their careers and their success on, finding and polishing rough diamonds. They started with Peter Wythe, a rough-and-ready centre-forward who had spent some time playing in South Africa. Larry Lloyd came in, who was simply rough, a man who had played at the very top level for Liverpool, but most other people seemed to think was an absolute liability. Woodcock was sent on loan to Lincoln, then Doncaster, to be toughened up, a tactic that worked so well he was playing for England within the year. In December of the 1976-77 season, Forrest won their first trophy under Clough, beating Leighton Orient 5-1 over two legs in the Anglo-Scottish Cup final. It was a curious tournament that was only in its second year, so nobody else took it that seriously. But Clough did. He would later credit this as being a vital step on their path to glory. We had players who had been nowhere, won nothing, he wrote in his autobiography. We wanted something to show for our belief that we had the makings of a useful side. 
Promotion was secured that season, but only just. Forest had completed their games and were clinging on to third place. Due to a fixture pileup, Bolton still had three games to go and they couldn't afford to lose any of them. Two wins and a draw would see them leapfrog Forest to claim the final promotion place, but they lost the second game to Wolves. Clough had headed off on holiday by this point, and he learned of their promotion by telephone from Mallorca. Clough and Taylor got to work on the team again that summer. In came Kenny Burns, a wild striker from Birmingham who had managed to annoy pretty much everyone he came into contact with, to the point that the Birmingham chairman actually advised Clough against signing him. But instead of playing Burns up front, it was decided that he would partner Lloyd at the back, the sort of off-the-wall decision that would have looked ludicrous from anyone else. Archie Gemmell, a favourite from Derby, was bought for a bargain price of £25,000. And what they would regard as the jewel in the crown, goalkeeper Peter Shilton, was purchased for a then hefty for a goalkeeper fee of 270000 from relegated Stoke. Expectations remained low for this team that had only just scraped promotion and whose core was still made of players who had been scrapping to avoid relegation from the second division just a couple of years earlier. In fact, most newspapers' pre-season predictions had them in the lower half of the table at best. But they arrived at Goodison Park for their first game of the season with spirits high, and they duly made light work of a good Everton side, winning 3-1 in a manner that made many sit up rather sharply and take notice. Afterwards, Clough invited the former Liverpool manager Bill Shankly to give his players a pep talk in the dressing room. Nobody was getting too excited yet, even when Forrest followed that opening day victory with wins over Bristol City and an emphatic 3-0 thrashing of local rivals Derby County. They lost the next game, 3-0 to Arsenal, but that was their only defeat until early November. Still, the doubters remained, and to this day the Forest players in that team recall with irritation the general consensus in the media that their bubble would soon burst. All the evidence pointed to that bubble being pretty sturdy, not about to pop any time soon. Forest outscored their opponents 17-2 in October, including a 4-0 win over Ipswich, which put them top of the league by two points. But it wasn't until a trip to Old Trafford just before Christmas, that people really started to think that this team were the real thing. Forrest beat Manchester United 4-0, and frankly, the hosts were lucky to get off that lightly. They don't play with 11 men, said United manager Dave Sexton afterwards. They seem to have 16 or 17. So good were Forrest that around this time, Clough and Taylor went for the England job, left vacant after their old enemy Don Reavy departed to manage the United Arab Emirates. Clough swaggered into his interview, and despite insulting the New England kit, and generally acting like he already owned the place, was convinced that he had got the job. But an inherently conservative, or perhaps given Clough's attitude sensible, FA board thought he would be too much trouble, and instead gave the permanent job to Ron Greenwood, who had been doing it on a caretaker basis. England's loss was Forrest's gain. 
they didn't lose another league game all season, following up their thrashing of United with a creditable draw against the all-powerful Liverpool, then flexing aside most of the other opponents that fell into their path. Clough, either so confident of his side's quality or just so confident and eccentric that he felt he could do anything, went on holiday at the end of February with his family, the sort of stunt that feels absolutely remarkable for anyone other than him. He returned just in time to lead Forrest into the League Cup final against Liverpool, which in truth they were lucky to draw nil-nil with the 18-year-old Chris Woods standing in for the cup-tied Peter Shilton. Forrest won the replay at Old Trafford 1-0 thanks to a John Robertson penalty won by John O'Hare despite Phil Thompson's foul on him being clearly outside the area. Taylor, when informed that the TV camera showed the foul was outside the box, said, It also shows we've got the cup. That's the main thing. Things were getting tight, but partly because of their cup runs, Forrest always had games in hand and were always ahead of their nearest challengers, Liverpool and Everton. A series of narrow wins and gritty draws in the spring meant that they travelled to Coventry in the middle of April, knowing a point would secure the title. There, Shilton had the game of his life, repelling effort after effort as Forrest grimly hung on. But hang on they did. The point was gained, and the title, one of the most extraordinary in English football history, was won. Clough had become only the third manager in history to win the league title with two different clubs, having won it with Derby six years earlier. And Forrest were the fifth team to top Division One in their first season after promotion. They are also the last to achieve that feat, something you would think will never happen again. Clough, though, celebrated in his own way by getting up bright and early the following morning to help out in his brother's newsagents. The following season kicked off with a 5-0 win over Ipswich in the Charity Shield, but attention inevitably was focused on the European Cup, long an obsession for both Clough and Taylor. They had been in it before with Derby in 1973, but harboured suspicions that they had been cheated out of their semi-final against Juventus. Excitement was high then for the first round draw, but that anticipation was punctured when Forrest were paired with Liverpool. It wasn't just that Bob Paisley's side were, as defending champions, about the strongest team Forrest could have faced, more that these players, all from relatively humble backgrounds, had been dreaming of trips to Madrid, Athens, Turin or Monaco. To have to play a team they had faced four times the previous season was something of a letdown. Their performance in the two-legged tie, however, was not a letdown. Gary Birtles, almost always referred to as the carpet fitter from Long Eaton, because of the profession he was doing only 18 months or so earlier, put Forrest ahead at the city ground in just his third appearance for the first team. Liverpool, who'd beaten Tottenham 7-0 a few weeks earlier, perhaps got a little cocky, with Emlyn Hughes and Phil Thompson taunting the Forest players that one goal would not be enough to beat the mighty Liverpool. They piled forwards looking for an equaliser, but that was when Forest hit them on the break, 
with fullback Colin Barrett taking leave of his position and arguably his senses to charge upfield in support of the counter-attack, volleying home from Bertel's knockdown. Inevitably, most of the Forest team sought out Hughes and Thompson to politely inquire whether they thought two goals would suffice. Barrett, who suffered a serious knee injury not long afterwards and barely played again, is still beloved by the Forest fans for that goal. Not that he saw it again for quite a long time. His wife taped over the recording of the game with the famous Who Shot J.R. episode of Dallas. As it turned out, Forrest didn't actually need the cushion of that goal, pleasant though it was. Another miraculous performance by Shilton in the second leg at Anfield, repelling everything the European champions could throw at him, secured a nil-nil draw and two-nil progression to the next round on aggregate. You never know, John, said Clough to commentator John Motson in the post-match interview. You and your profession might just realise that we're a good side. In the next round, they drew one of the continental opponents they had been hoping for in the first place, AEK Athens, who had hammered Porto in the first round. Forrest had played AEK Stadium on a pre-season tour, and the memories of fans lighting fires in the stands remained. But it was to prove relatively straightforward goals from McGovern and Bertel sealing a 2-0 win in the away leg before AEK, managed by Ferenc Pushkas, were battered 5-1 in the return. While all this was happening, Forrest was still doing pretty well in the league, going unbeaten until the start of December, when Liverpool gained some revenge for the European Cup defeat by beating them 2-0. That signalled the end of an undefeated run that had lasted over a year, and stretched to 42 games, a record that wouldn't be beaten until Arsenal did it some 25 years later. Inevitably, their adventures in Europe would be the main focus, and that was at least in part the motivation behind signing Trevor Francis. Negotiations dragged on throughout the winter, with Francis' club Birmingham insisting that Forrest make him England's first £1 million player. For various reasons, not least wishing to avoid putting the pressure that would come with that status on the player, Clough desperately tried to avoid paying the full whack, even as Taylor became more and more irritated and urged him to just get the deal done. It's not our money, said Taylor. Get it paid. Eventually, after an abortive attempt to sign Charlie George from Derby, Francis signed. There's still some debate about how much Forrest actually paid, Clough insisting he protected his principles by making it £999,999, but that barely mattered because everyone called Francis the first £1 million player anyway. He made his debut in a reserve game in which Clough told him off for not wearing shin pads. And as Francis was cup-tied for the League Cup and ineligible for the next few rounds of the European Cup, Clough employed him as a temporary T-boy for the rest of the team. Another financial outlay would prove almost as significant. Clough had insisted for some time that Forrest needed a new stand, and one was duly commissioned at a price of around 2.5 million, which the club reckoned could be paid off in five years. In reality, it took twice as long, a financial burden which contributed, at least in part, to the decline that followed.
Forrest retained the League Cup, beating Southampton 3-2 in the final at Wembley, a victory inspired by Clough's infamous insistence that his players drank their way through a huge tray of beer and champagne the night before. It wasn't the first time he had tried that approach, and you wonder if they won the game in spite of this theoretical team bonding experience rather than because of it. But second-half goals from Bertels and Woodcock were enough for another trophy. Their league form was decent, they only lost three First Division games all season, but Liverpool were imperious, running away with the title as Clough's men waited for their next game in Europe. That eventually came in March, against Grasshopper Zurich. Forrest went behind in the first leg and initially looked nervous, but roared back later with goals from Bertels, Robertson, Gemmel and Lloyd, sealing a 4-1 win and essentially making the second leg a formality. As it turns out, that was the case. A nil-nil draw sent Forrest through to the semi-finals, which wouldn't be anything like as relaxed. Cologne were their opponents, and the Forrest players were relaxed before the game by Taylor, who had scouted the Germans and returned declaring they were no good and that, we'll beat this lot by five, no problems. They were a Midland League side, according to him, dismissing each Cologne player as they filed into the city ground for the first leg. If so, the Midland League had improved in quality since the last time he looked. Cologne were 2-0 up within 19 minutes and Forrest were reeling. They came back with gusto, goals from Ian Bowyer, Bertels and Robertson, making things look a little comfortable as the game entered the closing stages. But substitute Yasuhiko Okudera grabbed an equaliser and now Cologne had three away goals. These were the days when away goals in Europe were considered absolutely crucial. Nobody had previously reached the final when they had to win the second leg of the semi. Forest were almost written off ahead of the return, most assuming that the German champions would hold them off with relative ease, including an enterprising local travel company who tried to steal a march on the competition by advertising travel from Cologne to Munich for the final before the team had actually qualified. Clough didn't agree, looking straight down the barrel of the camera in a TV interview with a half-smile on his face and said, I do hope nobody is stupid enough to write us off. There followed an extraordinarily tense 90 minutes in which Forrest defended with gumption and with 65 minutes on the clock, the old dependable bowyer, utility man extraordinaire, stooped and headed home from a corner. Forrest, only a couple of years removed from being a mediocre second division side, were in the European Cup final. There, they would play Swedish side Malmö, objectively making it one of the most underwhelming finals in the history of the competition. Taylor went to watch them and decided they were even worse than he thought Cologne were. But this time, perhaps scarred by what happened before, he was actually scared of passing his opinions on to the team. They're such a bad side, I'm worried, he said. We don't let the lads know. While their opponents might not have been of the finest quality, there was still some drama ahead of the game. Frank Clark, Martin O'Neill and Archie Gemmel were all injured in the lead-up to the final. And while they all claimed to be ready for the game in Munich, with Boyer always dependable and Francis eligible for the first time in the tournament, 
Clough had a selection dilemma. Bowyer and Francis were in, which left only one spot. In the end, Clark was picked, mainly because Clough thought that Gemmell and O'Neill were fibbing about how fit they were. O'Neill took it badly, but Gemmell took it abysmally, under the impression that he'd been promised a place if he was fit. He yelled at Clough in front of the whole squad, told Taylor to stick his explanation after being taken aside later, and generally contributed to a pretty frosty atmosphere on the day of the game. He never played for Nottingham Forest again. Perhaps that was the reason Forrest started so nervously in what was ultimately a dog of a game. Burns made mistakes. Francis couldn't make an impression. Robertson saw little of the ball. Until, in first half injury time, Robertson got the ball on the left, shuffled down the flank in that usual unassuming way, produced that brief burst of pace that always took defenders by surprise and in this case took him past Malmo right back Roland Anderson. He dug out across to the back post where Francis had carefully kept himself a yard or two behind his marker. Enough space for the one million pound man to head into the roof of the net and forward roll onto the shot put circle in the Olympic Stadium. That was the moment that a club, a whole city changed. Things like this weren't supposed to happen to small provincial teams like Forest a team in a city of around 300,000 who had gone from obscurity to the top of the club game in 24 months. So how do you follow winning the European Cup two seasons after promotion from the second tier of English football? By winning it again, of course. If Forrest's retention of the trophy wasn't a remarkable enough story in itself, it becomes even more remarkable when you consider that the 1979-1980 season saw the start of the premature dismantling of that great forest team which would ultimately lead to their relative wilderness years in the 1980s. Gemmell left, replaced by Asa Hartford, only for Hartford to be sold after playing just three games. Frank Clark effectively retired and Tony Woodcock was sold to Cologne. There was also the bizarre saga over Coventry striker Mick Ferguson, Clough told Martin O'Neill that he would be a makeweight in the transfer. All seemed to be agreed only for Peter Taylor to essentially talk Ferguson out of signing. There was a definite sense that the duo, once renowned for their prophetic abilities in the transfer market, were losing their touch. That was perhaps reflected in their league form, which after a good start became patchy and they finished a reasonably distant fifth. That, of course, was more than creditable and it showed how far Forrest had come, that it was viewed as a disappointment, but it quickly became clear that Europe was the focus. Forrest won the European Super Cup in February, beating Barcelona over two legs. Charlie George scoring at the city ground in his only real contribution during a month on loan, then it was back to the big one. The list of opponents Forrest faced in their run to the final was not, perhaps, the most fearsome. Oster of Sweden were beaten in the first round, then Romanian champions Argesh Pitesht, before an inspired performance by Trevor Francis, earned an aggregate win over Dynamo Berlin after the East Germans won the first leg. Francis was again impressive and scored as Forrest beat Ajax more comfortably than the 2-1 aggregate scoreline suggested in the semi-final. 
but that was the end of his significant involvement in the season, and arguably his career at the city ground, as he snapped his Achilles tendon in a league game and was sold the following year to Manchester City. The final, at the Bernabeu in Madrid, was against Hamburg, led by Kevin Keegan, who had left Liverpool for the German side three years earlier. His effectiveness in the game was perhaps impacted by a quiet pre-match word from Lloyd, who informed Keegan that he and Kenny Burns had arranged to take it in turns to kick the England forward. In a moment of unfortunate timing, Keegan looked towards Burns at the exact moment he was taking out his false teeth. Just like a year earlier, the final was not a classic, mainly because of Forrest's game plan. Out of necessity more than anything else, they played with only one striker, Bertels, and packed the midfield, hoping to sneak a goal with something special and hang on for the remainder of the game. As it turns out, that's exactly what happened. In the 20th minute, Robertson collected the ball on the left, cut infield, exchanged a 1-2 with Bertels, and then, on the stretch, hit a low effort towards the bottom corner, which Hamburg keeper Rudy Cargus got a hand to, but could only pour it into the net. Forrest then defended for the majority of the remaining 70 minutes, knocking back attack after attack with Shilton making a few fine saves and Hamburg right-back Manny Kaltz hitting the post with a long-range effort. By the end, most of the Forest players, Bertels in particular, were so shattered they could barely walk, but they held on to retain the trophy, becoming the first, and to date only, team to win the European Cup more times than their domestic league. You win something once, and people say it's all down to luck, Clough said afterwards. You win it twice, and it shuts the buggers up. Clough, in one of his frequent moments of contrariness, insisted that the whole squad would have to return to their hotel about 25 miles outside Madrid, rather than celebrate with their families in the city centre. A few players ignored his instructions and got a taxi back into town, returning just in time for breakfast the following morning. As they shuffled through reception, they encountered Taylor, who greeted them by saying, Morning, lads. You're up early. This was arguably the most extraordinary three years for an English football club in the history of the game, and perhaps it was inevitable that it couldn't last. Nevertheless, Clough and Taylor would later admit that they made some pretty significant mistakes in the following years. In the summer of 1980, relationships that were perhaps already fraying broke entirely. Bertels demanded a transfer, which he eventually got when Manchester United bought him. Clough tried to sell Francis to Barcelona while he was still recovering from that Achilles injury. O'Neill left for Norwich later that season, and Lloyd became player-manager of Wigan. Substandard but often expensive replacements like Ian Wallace, Raimondo Ponte and Einar Aas came in. By the middle of the 1980-81 season, the side that had conquered Europe twice was barely recognisable. They went out of the European Cup in the first round to CSK Sofia, lost the Super Cup to Valencia and the Intercontinental Cup to Internacional of Brazil. They lost in the fourth round of the League Cup, finished seventh in the league and arguably the only bright spot from the season came from getting to the quarter-finals of the FA Cup. Worse than poor recruitment, 
the relationship between Clough and Taylor was starting to deteriorate. The central tenet of their dynamic was that Taylor would find players and Clough would improve them, turning individuals that few others would have considered into a brilliant team. But the more mistakes that were made, the more that faith was eroded. Taylor became increasingly paranoid, even at one point thinking his office was bugged. The most egregious evidence that they had lost their touch was the purchase of Justin Fashionu. The young striker had been signed for a million pounds from Norwich after a fine breakout season, but to say he never settled at Forest was an understatement. Not helped by what can only be described as homophobic bullying by Clough. After hearing that Fashionu had been visiting gay bars in Nottingham, Clough humiliated him on the training ground, and even more inexplicably, proudly bragged about doing so years later. Fashionu stayed for only a season, scoring three goals. The personal relationship between Clough and Taylor, as well as the professional one, was also rapidly eroding. By 1982, it had disappeared completely. Taylor was done. After an underwhelming season in which Forrest had finished 12th and done nothing in the Cups, Taylor slumped in a chair in Clough's office and announced, I've shot it. I'm resigning. Clough tried to change his mind, but it wasn't for changing. In my last year at Forrest, I realised I had lost respect for Brian and had started to dislike him, said Taylor, years later. I woke up each morning dreading the thought of work. There was another, less high-profile, but arguably just as important departure that summer too. Jimmy Gordon had been Clough and Taylor's first team trainer since the early days at Derby, and had gone to Leeds with Clough when Taylor refused, mainly out of duty it seemed, because he knew Clough was barreling headlong into trouble. Among other things, Gordon was the man who operated as a buffer between Clough and his players, shielding them from or at least warning them of his worst excesses. He retired as Taylor left, and Clough was on his own. For his part, Taylor's time away from football didn't last long. He returned to Derby in November 1982 after unsuccessfully trying to talk Clough into joining him. The move didn't go well, Derby struggling in the second division, but it also led to the absolute end of his relationship with Clough. At the end of that season, Taylor signed John Robertson, the on-pitch architect of their greatest successes, who was now past his best, but crucially didn't tell Clough he was doing it. Clough found out while on a hiking trip, and to say the least, didn't take it well. In his newspaper column, he called Taylor a snake in the grass, and said that if he saw his former best friend had broken down in his car, I wouldn't pick him up, I'd run over him. The pair never spoke again before Taylor's death in 1990. As for Forrest, the first post-Taylor season actually went pretty well. They finished a commendable third in the first division and went deep into Europe. It might have been easy, the memories of those two European Cup wins still strong, for the UEFA Cup to feel like small fry, but Forrest's run to the semi-finals of that tournament in 1984 was mighty impressive which perhaps made the circumstances of their exit even worse. After making fairly short work of Vorfahrt's Frankfurt, they impressively beat PSV Eindhoven, got a little lucky 
in the first leg at least, in beating Celtic, before inching past Stormgratz thanks to an extra time penalty from Colin Walsh. That set up a semi-final against Anderlecht, and they took a 2-0 lead into the second leg thanks to two late Steve Hodge goals in the first. In a normal tie, they would have been strong favourites to go through, but as it turned out, this was not a normal tie. Enzo Schifo gave Anderlecht the lead in the first half, but Forrest were holding their own and had a few chances to nick a key away goal. But on the hour mark, the referee Emilio Guruchetamuro awarded the Belgians what can be diplomatically described as a dubious penalty. Kenny Swain adjudged to have disrupted the air somewhere near Kenneth Brill. Kenny must have been three yards away, claimed Paul Hart, playing at fullback for Forrest that night, years later. Brill scored the penalty, but Forrest, Clough included, suspected something was up. Those suspicions increased when, after Irvin Vanderberg had scored a third for Anderlecht, a Forrest goal was mysteriously disallowed with two minutes to go. That goal would have won the tie for Forrest, but Morrow spotted a foul that nobody else did. It's possible these were all just mistakes, and Anderlecht were certainly the better team on the night. But years later, it emerged that the Belgian club's chairman, Constant van den Stock, had bribed Moro with the equivalent of £18,000 to offer favourable treatment to his side. This only emerged in 1997. Both Moro and van den Stock were dead by then, so ultimately nobody really suffered any consequences for one of Europe's most egregious match-fixing scandals. And, more to the point, Forrest were denied their place in a European final. Anderlecht lost it anyway, on penalties, to Tottenham. The following few seasons are generally regarded as wilderness years for Clough at Forrest. There were three nondescript mid-table finishes, with faint flickers that suggested a possible title challenge dying out before they could really properly form. There were flashes of promise and excitement, like the goals of Peter Davenport or the occasional brilliance of Johnny Metgood, plus the odd incident that showed Clough still had a hold over the general fan base, if nobody else. After a League Cup quarter-final against QPR, a group of Forest fans invaded the pitch in celebration, leading to Clough punching a couple of them in the head as he tried to remove them from the playing area. It says plenty about his status as a semi-deity in the East Midlands that not only did he get away with a touchline ban rather than any further legal action, but made the men he punched apologise to him on local TV as if they were a couple of naughty schoolboys. But the main purpose of the mid-80s turned out to be Clough gradually putting together the building blocks of his last great team. Stuart Pearce arrived from Coventry. Neil Webb came in from Portsmouth, and both Des Walker and the manager's son, Nigel Clough, came through the youth system. There were a few bumps in the road, such as John Sheridan being bought, then sold after playing just one game. But by 1988, Clough had brought together a team capable of challenging at the right end of the table. From 1987 to 1990, Forrest finished third twice, won two League Cups, and won Simod Cup, 
a trophy introduced to compensate for English teams not being in Europe, and they also reached two FA Cup semi-finals. With the financial landscape of English football already changing to the point that clubs the size of Forest were no longer able to compete with the very biggest, this represented overachievement for a club that was still a relatively minor concern in the East Midlands. Clough was still in demand too. In 1988, he was offered the Wales job when Mike England was sacked. But despite wanting to take on the position on a part-time basis, the Forest Board wouldn't allow it. Clough declared that he bitterly resented the decision, but didn't go through with now regular threats to quit if things didn't go his way. Clough seemed to have rediscovered a knack for finding players from nowhere and turning them into top-flight talents, such as Ian Wone, signed from non-league Runcorn and who went on to be a Forest stalwart for years. And then there was Roy Keane, plucked from Cobb Ramblers in Ireland, who was a clear, outstanding talent from the moment he was thrown into the Forest team for an away game at Liverpool, of all places. But there were still signs of Clough's more unpleasant side in those years, something perhaps illustrated most profoundly by his reaction to the Hillsborough disaster. Forest were the opponents on that awful day in Sheffield, when 96 fans lost their lives in a crush at the Leppings Lane end, something that would eventually, years later, be attributed to mistakes made in the policing of the game. A gate was opened and fans were funneled down one single tunnel into the terrace and into a single pen when multiple tunnels should have spread the crowd out much more evenly. The outrage over the coverage of the disaster in some parts of the media, where Liverpool fans were blamed for causing the deaths of their own, was righteous and justified. But even five years later, when he came to write his autobiography, Clough repeated these lies, pointing the finger at those Liverpool fans, saying they were drunk, unruly and disorderly. He recanted years later, but the damage was done. There were more signs in those years that his on-pitch genius and his infamous psychology and man management were fading too. The most obvious example was the 1991 FA Cup final. The FA Cup was Clough's white whale, the competition that had always eluded him as he won basically everything else there was to win in club football. In fact, he had never even got further than the semi-final, but a gruelling run in which Forrest were drawn away in every round culminated in facing Tottenham at Wembley on a glorious May day. Forrest took the lead through a rasping Stuart Pearce free kick, awarded for a reckless foul by Paul Gascoigne on Gary Charles, causing more damage to the fowler rather than the foulee. Gascoigne's knee shattered in the challenge. Then Forest keeper Mark Crossley became the second ever man to save a penalty in an FA Cup final, stopping Gary Lineker's effort in the first half. But Paul Stewart equalised after the break, and the final went to extra time. Inexplicably, while Tottenham manager Terry Venables gave his team a final pep-up and roused them for the additional 30 minutes in energy-sapping conditions, Clough stayed on the bench, allowing his coaching staff to talk to the players. Whether this was a strange attempt to psychologically encourage his players, or psych out his opponents, or perhaps he just froze, has never been adequately explained. Clough wrote in his autobiography 
that he just had nothing more to offer and that he didn't want to put extra pressure on his players by drawing attention to himself, but that doesn't seem convincing. Ten minutes into extra time, Des Walker, who at the time was among the best defenders in the world, headed into his own net and Clough's last chance to lift that trophy was gone. Clough later admitted that he should have retired after that game, and perhaps if Forrest had won, that last achievement ticked off his list, then he might have done so. But he went on holiday, returned refreshed, and was persuaded to stay on by his family. Anyone who'd been paying attention to Nottingham Forest could have seen that the end was nigh. On the surface, Clough's penultimate season was pretty good. Forrest had finished a respectable eighth, were beaten in the League Cup final by Manchester United and won the Zenith Data Systems Cup. A minor trophy, but a trophy nonetheless. But the eccentricities that had previously been hailed as evidence of genius had long since become erratic, and now they had turned outright destructive. There was the time Darren Wassell, a young defender, injured his hand in a reserve game, and in response to concerns that he had broken a bone, Clough spat on it and said, there, that's better. There was also the time that England manager Graham Taylor visited the city ground to discuss Nigel's place in the national team, but Clough simply hid in his office and turned all the lights out. His drinking had by this time reached levels where it was a surprise that he could even function at all, let alone manage a top-flight football team. To a point, he could be propped up by loyal lieutenants on his coaching staff like Ron Fenton, Alan Hill, Liam O'Kane and Archie Gemmell, but in the end it became too much. He dithered over transfer targets and when he did make a decision, it was invariably the wrong one. When Walker left for Sampdoria in 1992, he wasn't adequately replaced. Ditto Teddy Sheringham. Clough had the opportunity to sign Stan Collymore, but hesitated and instead bought Robert Rosario. I don't know if he's right for us, he told Duncan Hamilton, then Forest correspondent for the Nottingham Evening Post. And yet the thing is, I used to know. For that whole final season, there seemed to be a collective denial that Forrest would actually get relegated. Most people simply couldn't comprehend that the great Brian Clough, the man who had worked miracles at Derby County and Nottingham Forest, could actually go out like this. But Forrest were dreadful for most of the season. Propped up by the outstanding performances of Keane, perhaps the last masterstroke Clough ever pulled, with Pierce out for much of the season with injury, and the rest of the side essentially inadequate. The end came in a home game against Sheffield United, a defeat to a team that Clough would have once beaten in his sleep, with arguably the greatest English manager of all time reduced to a sad, helpless figure on the touchline. There's a heartbreaking shot of Clough as the end neared, a look of despair on his blotchy, alcohol-ravaged face, holding his two thumbs together and shaking them, as if he's offering a prayer to some god that could save him from going out like this. But no god came. Forrest lost, and they were consigned to the second tier for the first time since 1977. After all that success, Clough would leave Forrest in exactly the same division he found them. 
After the game, Clough was interviewed by Barry Davies for Match of the Day, but before long he was on the verge of tears. Barry, could you excuse me, he said. I'll go back to Barbara and my grandchildren. This he duly did, and there he stayed, making only fleeting public appearances in the years that followed. He never managed another football club, and he died of stomach cancer in 2004 at the age of 69. Nottingham Forest made an immediate return to the Premier League in 1994 under the stewardship of Clough's former left-back, Frank Clark, but lasted just three years and after bouncing back briefly in 1998, fell into the second flight in 1999 and have remained there ever since. You have been listening to Bedtime Football Stories with The Athletic. Sleep tight. <laughs>